Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. All week, we're exploring public safety in Chicago and the role of law enforcement when it comes to reform. It's part of our series, Reimagine Chicago, where we examine how the city's institutions work and how they could work better for you. Chicago has the second largest police force in the country, one with a stained history and a complicated relationship with the communities it polices. Today on the podcast, we'll explore renewed calls for reform and what it would take to usher in real change. In a few moments, we'll take a closer look at the role the police union plays in officer accountability. But first, WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith breaks down the city's consent decree, a federal court order that's aimed at reforming police training policies and practices. So the consent decree, it's essentially like a police reform plan that is overseen by a federal judge. So the city of Chicago, and this is how consent decrees across the country work, you know, the city of Chicago agreed to a plan with deadlines. It was signed off on by, by Judge Robert Dow here in Chicago. And then there are semi-annual reports that go to that judge. The judge decides whether or not the city is keeping its promises on police reform and can, you know, kind of hold their feet to the fire if they are not. So Chicago has been under a consent decree for more than two years now. Can you remind us how we got to this point? Yeah, actually, it starts all the way back in in 2014 with the police killing of Laquan McDonald. Uh, The video of that shooting and the protest brought in the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate the Chicago Police Department. They ended up putting out a report in 2017 that found CPD had a history of racist and abusive and unconstitutional policing. And then the way it works here in Chicago is a little different than how it's worked in other parts of the country because Shortly after that report came out, uh, we had a new president who was not interested in a consent decree. But anyway, eventually that that Department of Justice report was brought to, to federal court and used as the basis for the reform plan that is now being enforced. Remind us of the, the goals that are outlined in the consent decree. Yeah, I mean, obviously, big picture is to try to correct the those findings that I just mentioned from the Department of Justice report, which yeah. is to make the police department more fair and and better treat people of color in the city to address abusive or unconstitutional policing. Specifically, there are things in there like improving and increasing training for police officers on something like responding to mental health calls or, or working with youth of color. There are things in there like changing the policies on when and how police can shoot their guns or use tasers. There's increased mental health support for police officers and increased supervision for police officers are some of the broad strokes that are in there that are supposed to just fully overhaul the way the police department works and the way it is viewed by Chicago residents. Well, as I mentioned, Patrick, in the first year of the consent decree, CPD missed 70% of its deadlines. Why are they missing so many reform deadlines? Is that normal? Well, it's not normal. You know, there have been and are ongoing uh, police consent decrees across the country. It's not as if every single department misses 70% of its deadlines in the first year. However, some, you know, having spoken with a lot of experts on this, uh, some missed deadlines is normal. You do see that throughout the, throughout the country. You see that with past consent decrees. 
as far as why it's missing so many, I think that depends on who you ask. You know, there are experts and activists who would say the reason is that CPD just isn't taking this seriously enough that they have not fully staffed or fully funded a constitutional policing unit and that this is all just kind of paperwork to them. Uh, I think what, well, I know what the police department would say is that they're working really hard at this mm -hmm. and that there are a, a lot of deadlines in the consent decree. I will say that the Chicago consent decree is a little bit unique in that there are a lot of specific deadlines in the first year. That's not how all consent decrees across the country have worked. Okay. Uh, and I've heard from people who who said, you know, this police reform plan was written to take five years, but consent decrees take 10 years. They take a dozen years. And so some people think that the deadlines are unrealistic. The independent monitor who's overseeing this, uh, you know, she doesn't think so. She she says that the CPD is really falling short of its obligations. The Chicago Police Department is making some progress. Tell us about that. Yeah, that, that's that's actually right. You know, this last report, it's now it's now been a few months since it came out. So I mentioned an independent monitor that is somebody who was appointed by the judge and sort of every six months grades the police department on where they're at. This last report, you know, I read each one of those uh, very closely. This last report was the first one where the monitoring team really was expressing some optimism and saying, hey, CPD's making progress on on substantial issues here. You know, it was the first time that the monitor has said that they are actually meeting more of their obligations than they're missing. I mean, it's still almost 50%, so it's not good enough. But it was kind of the first time I had seen the monitor saying, hey, you know, I do think there's real progress here. How does the department actually communicate reforms or any policy changes that they're making to the rank and file officers? Well, I mean, it, it's a lot like any other business. You know, uh, officers are sort of given bulletins that they might get uh, through their internal internet, you know, their sort of email. An with, email, yeah. Okay. Yeah, an email with the department. If they're, <laughs> thank you. Yes, an email from the department. <laughs> if it's something that needs extra training, there there sometimes is, is online training for the officers, or sometimes there's new in-person training on it. And also changes will be, they'll go over them with officers at roll call before the shifts are started. So, you know, there's a number of ways, but but there are also always requirements in there where, where officers have to be saying, yes, I've received this. Yes, I understand. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and that's WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. This is the latest conversation in our Reimagined Chicago series, where we're rethinking how the city's major institutions from policing to City Hall, to neighborhood investment, how they work and how they could work better. Patrick, I want to take us back to a moment last summer and the story of Miracle Boyd. She's a youth organizer with the group Good Kids Mad City. And last summer at a protest, she was hit in the mouth by a police officer, actually lost several teeth. Boyd said that if anything, police abuse has gotten worse in Chicago since the start of the consent decree. So let's take a listen. It's definitely got worse because it's definitely got worse because Myself as a protester and activist and organizer since my sophomore year of high school and now I'm a freshman in college, it feels like a slap in the face that I was attacked by police and also many others wounded by police as well. As we talked about, Patrick, the consent decree was supposed to usher in these big changes. And not only is the department missing these big deadlines, folks like Miracle think that police abuse is getting worse. I'm wondering about the path forward then and why reform remains elusive in Chicago? Well, look, a fundamental change uh, at, at the Chicago Police Department is going to require a cultural change, I think a bottom-up cultural change. And that is just a really hard thing to do. You know, there are 13,000 police officers in Chicago. 
obviously CPD has has a very long and troubled history and changing culture, if it's going to happen at all, is going to be really difficult and, and take a long time. And, and you're right. People like Miracle Boyd and other activists say they're just not seeing any signs that that's happening at all. Uh, the path forward, that's a great question. This is something I, I spoke with people about when I talked about that sort of positive monitoring report that came out mm-hmm. where people said, what's it going to mean if they start meeting more of their deadlines, but we don't feel any difference on the streets? And they said, what it's going to mean is that the consent decree will just completely lose legitimacy. So that's certainly something that I'm watching. Let's uh, switch gears here and talk about the, the union for a bit. How does the police union factor in here? Does the FOP get a say? Well, they don't get a say in court. They've actually tried to sort of join uh, the, the legal proceedings. They, they don't get a say in federal court on around the consent decree, but they get a huge say in that the judge decided early on in the process that nothing in the consent decree can supersede what's in a collectively bargained contract. So the contract that police officers have is sort of above this consent decree, and there are parts in the consent decree that say the city will make its best efforts to negotiate with the union about X or Y. So that's things like how complaints work against officers, what the discipline process is like. Those are things that can only be changed if it gets changed at the bargaining table. we got to talk about uh, FOP President John Catanzara and his contentious relationship with Mayor Lightfoot and uh, Police Superintendent David Brown. The union recently issued a vote of no confidence in city leadership. What exactly does that mean? Well, I mean, it, it doesn't mean a lot. It's sort of just a formal way for, for the union and for officers to say, hey, we don't really like the job you're doing. It's something that the FOP here in Chicago has done with other police leaders in the past. It's something that FOPs do around the country. It's not that surprising. Mm-hmm. However, I mean, the union obviously is the police officers of the city, and they're saying, yeah, we don't think you're doing a good job. And they specifically were talking about and upset about really long days and canceled days off. It's something that I've heard a lot from officers where officers are feeling really overworked and very stressed. And so, again, I think these things do happen from time to time. This isn't uh, you know, a totally new phenomenon. But I do think it's meaningful that they're saying, no, we are – this upset about this, we need to take a vote and, and send that message about these long days and, and canceled days off. And the mayor doesn't seem to be taking it too seriously, calling it a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah. And I understand that, you know, her and the FOP president, John Catanzara, they don't have a good relationship. I think it's understandable why she wouldn't have a good relationship with him. However, as I said, the union are the police officers. So I, I in a way, I don't know that, that the mayor should be taking it as a badge of, of honor that you know, these twelve to 13,000 city employees that their union voted to say that they, they don't like the job that the mayor's doing. Anything else that you think our listeners should know about how police reform works in Chicago and what they should be watching moving forward? Well, I think the consent decree is one thing to watch. I'm certainly going to be trying to follow to see if they, they really ramp things up. Um, but I will still be really interested, and I think listeners will be interested to follow as we get to this question of whether or not The consent decree is making real cultural changes, and I think the way we're going to see that is what people in communities, not just activists, but people in communities that haven't haven't historically been over-policed, what they're saying about what how police are treating them, how they feel about the police in their neighborhoods. That's something that I'm going to be listening for, and I think that that's going to be maybe more important than what the consent decree uh, says. That is WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. Patrick, thank you. Thank you. We just heard about the city's consent decree, a court order aimed at reforming police training, policies, and practices. But reform has not come as swiftly as some might have hoped. 
So what is standing in the way? Enter the police union. Critics argue that CPD's union contracts often block accountability and oversight, effectively protecting officers who abuse their power. Can we reimagine how the police union contract works and the role that the union plays in officer accountability? Well, on the line with us now to help answer this question is Rachel Murphy. She's a staff attorney at the ACLU of Illinois. Rachel, welcome to Reset. Thank you. Glad to be here. Also with us is Arnie Duncan, former U.S. Secretary of Education and founder of the violence prevention group Chicago Cred. Secretary Duncan, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Rachel, I'll start with you. I want to focus first on the heart of CPD's power. That's its union. What can you tell us about the Fraternal Order of Police? Uh, that's the union that represents Chicago's rank-and-file officers and, and how their contracts are negotiated. So the FOP contract, as well as the supervisor's contract, they include what's called their Bill of Rights, and it's a set of provisions that are extremely protective of officers and really make it difficult for investigators to hold them accountable to even investigate allegations of misconduct. They limit transparency into any past disciplinary records. So there are all these provisions that really create obstacles to transparency and accountability and just make it difficult for people to come forward and get any kind of uh, justice when they feel that an officer has mistreated them. Secretary Duncan, you wrote an op-ed in the Sun-Times recently arguing that the FOP contract should mirror an agreement that the city struck last summer with sergeants, lieutenants, and captains. In what way? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a starting point. I didn't say that's a, a floor, not a ceiling. But I just want to go back to where you started. You said Chicago has the second largest police force in the country. Second largest in the country. But we are six times more violent than New York and three times more violent than L.A. So something really, really isn't working here, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. And if we could create a contract that just doesn't protect police, but that promotes justice, and that allows uh, the police to try and rebuild trust with the community, which you cannot have effective policing without trust. And mistrust, distrust is extraordinarily high, particularly on the south and west side. So before you talk about details of a contract, you got to talk about sort of values. What are you trying to accomplish here? And if we could promote justice, if we could rebuild trust, then everybody wins. The community wins, the city wins, and very importantly, police win as well. Rachel, Chicago is under a federal consent decree for reform uh, prompted by the 2014 murder of Laquan McDonald by former officer Jason Van Dyke. Remind us how the consent decree works and, and where things stand right now. So the consent decree, it's a federally mandated agreement between the city and the state, and it includes, you know, hundreds of provisions that uh, the city and CPD are required to implement over time. There is an independent monitoring team who periodically issues reports assessing their compliance with all of the various requirements that they have to meet. So far, um, there have been three reports issued by the independent monitoring team. The city and CPD have missed tons of deadlines, um, you know, in the past year and a half that it's been in effect. And there has just been this lack of, you know, real commitment to change. And 
there's a lot of community engagement that is supposed to happen within the consent decree with, uh, you know, policy development and a lot of other things. And what we've really seen is the city appearing to, you know, engage in that, but actually not meaningfully doing it and instead further harming the relationships with community members who have given so much time to participate in these processes. Um, So there is a lot of work left to do. It's going to take a long time to really uh, change the culture that is so deeply entrenched in CPD. But, you know, this is something that is so important and it really will be able to build up those relationships if CPD and the city truly commit to, um, you know, the parameters of the consent decree and the heart and soul that's behind why we, why we have a consent decree in the first place. To that end, you know, we've seen deadline after deadline in the consent decree pass, uh, suggesting that reform is more easier said than done. Um, but then last week, Mayor Lightfoot and CPD issued a new foot pursuit policy after the police killing of 13-year-old Adam Toledo, who was, of course, chased on foot. So can changes happen sooner if, if the will is there? I think if the will is there, it absolutely can happen sooner. Um, what we see is that they are resistant to change until, you know, they're actually pushed there by, you know, when there's enough pressure. You know, Mayor Lightfoot ran on a campaign that recommended a foot pursuit policy be put in place. And yet she's been in office for two years and they didn't push it. They could have, you know, the consent decree is a floor, not a ceiling. Just because there were certain requirements set forth, that doesn't mean they can't do them sooner. doesn't mean they can't do them better. And so, um, you know, if they actually commit and show they want to not be the, you know, six times more violent than New York or L.A., then it's really going to require more meaningful um, engagement with all of these requirements. Secretary Duncan, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, and that was uh, when you mentioned the values of CPD. What values do you think the department is missing? It's not that they're missing it. It's just that they are they are not emphasized. The, the point of the contract can't simply be protect police and, frankly, protect police who, who have not done a good job. When you have records that are you know, dismissed uh, after five years, uh, you know, who benefits from that? None of us in our places of work would have our records dismissed after five years. When you prohibit anonymous complaints, and people are scared to make complaints because of fear of retribution, you know, who are you protecting? And, and the goal of a contract can't be to protect, uh, you know, misconduct, to protect, you know, actors who, who do who bad actors. What should be the goal of, of any contract? And obviously I've never negotiated a police contract, but I've negotiated two teacher contracts here in the Chicago Public School. As I said earlier, the most important strategy, the most important tool the police have to solve crimes is trust with the community. That's the most important uh, strategy, weapon, if you want to call it that, is trust. Yeah. Without trust, they have no chance of being effective. And our city becomes more violent and less safe, and we lose population, we lose school enrollment. And so one, building trust has to be uh, at the top of that. Secondly, the focus can't, again, be on protecting bad actors, but on justice. So it has to be justice. And third, it's an opportunity now, we need it more than ever, to, you know, whether it's called reimagining policing, but reimagining public safety. 
So those three goals, trust, justice, and reimagine public safety, um, that has to be the goal of, uh, of this contract and everything going forward. And I'll be really clear, that is in absolutely in the best interest of every police officer who's out there working hard, protecting us, acting with extraordinary courage on a daily basis. That's actually what they want and what they need. Your organization, Chicago Credit, actually works to reduce gun violence on Chicago's south and west side. So what are some other issues that you've identified in the police union contract that ultimately impact the department's ability to keep residents safe? Again, I repeat myself here, but it's just the, the goal of a contract can't be to protect uh, your bad behavior. Where we have a situation where, where you cannot make a complaint. Uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the supervisor's contract, they, they have a provision now to try and uh, support and recognize whistleblowers. So you break that code of silence. That code of silence that devastates public trust. Mm-hmm. Situation after the Laquan McDonald you know, uh, killing here in Chicago, where you had all of the captured on video, and despite the fact that it was captured body cams, you had, you had police officers' written statements that contradicted what the cameras showed. And so you have to break that code of silence again to rebuild trust. So those are the kinds of it's almost it's almost heartbreaking, frankly, that we have to you know negotiate or renegotiate for those things mm-hmm. that actually would give officers the most important tools they need to be effective in their job of solving crimes. So much of the violence here in Chicago is driven by retaliation. A huge amount of the work we do is to try and stop the next shooting, to try and stop the retaliation. But unfortunately, because there's so rare, so few crimes get solved here in Chicago. When you don't get justice in the justice system, then people resort to, to street justice. If mm-hmm. they feel that no one cares, uh, then that exacerbates the violence. But actually, when crimes don't get solved, and, ne- and not nearly enough homicides or other crimes get solved in Chicago, that is literally a driver of violence in our city. That's the problem we're trying to solve here. Rachel, you get the final word here. In an ideal world, how can we reimagine public safety in Chicago? I think that, you know, in an ideal world, if we have a police force, you know, they're not seen as this oppressive, intimidating force for, you know, so many communities. Instead, it actually is seen as something that, you know, the people that you call on when you have a problem and you feel unsafe and they actually come and help you. But for so many people, Um, in Chicago and across the country, that's not the reality. And um, I think, you know, we need to spread out some of the um, responsibilities that have been placed on police um, and realize that they are not the best people to be uh, responding to mental health crises. And they are, you know, not trained in so many of the situations that they are responding to. And that's not ideal for anybody. It's not ideal for the people that are in that crisis and it's not ideal for the officers going in. And so I think, you know, we, we want a world in which um, everybody feels safe and everybody has the lifeline to call when you, when you need help. And instead of feeling that if you call the police, you might, it might be more dangerous than, you know, not calling the police. That's Rachel Murphy, staff attorney with the ACLU of Illinois, and Arnie Duncan, founder of Chicago Cred. Thank you both. We should note that the city and its police union reached a tentative contract agreement last month. After four years of negotiations, 
It includes accountability and transparency reforms, more support for officer wellness and back pay. And that's today's Reset. All month on the podcast, we're bringing you our series, Reimagine Chicago, where we ask, how does Chicago work and how could it work better for residents? We're tackling city government, community investment, public safety, and schools. As we roll out this special project, we'll still bring you the weekly news recap every Friday. Thanks for listening and take a few seconds to leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll meet again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.